Well, hello everyone. It is time to read the Des Moines Register for Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm Dennis May, and my partner at the microphone today is Barb DeHack. Reminder that all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. You can learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. And now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Our statewide AccuWeather forecast calls for clouds and sun today, pleasant in the south and near Des Moines. The winds will be from the north at 8 to 16 miles per hour, and it will be partly cloudy tonight. The forecast for Des Moines calls for a high today of 61 with a low of 36, pleasant with clouds and sun and breezy in the afternoon. On Thursday, a high of 56 with a low of 33, partly sunny and breezy. Across the area, pleasant with intervals of clouds and sunshine. How our states are doing in this fall? It was 94 degrees at Childress, Texas yesterday, and 16 at Crested Butte, Colorado. Our days are getting shorter with the sunrise. Today was at 6.54 a.m. and will set at 5.02 p.m. Now let's take a look at the headlines in today's Des Moines Register. On our front page, first of all, though, there is a large photo of a woman sitting at a voting table with the different privacy partitions in the foreground under the heading of ballots cast in Des Moines Metro. The caption for the photo, Mary Wellman of Des Moines votes at Roosevelt High School on Tuesday. For the results from mayoral, city, and council, and school board elections across the Des Moines Metro, you can check the DesMoinesRegister.com website. Full results will be in Thursday's paper. Other headlines on the front page. Reynolds says Trump can't win. Gives DeSantis her endorsement. Calls the Florida governor right person at the right time. And a stalemate between the United States Postal Service and apartment leaves Des Moines tenants without mail delivery. To get us started with today's Des Moines Register, here is Barb. Thank you, Dennis. Reynolds says Trump can't win and gives her DeSantis her endorsement. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is endorsing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president, she told the Des Moines Register Monday, because the country is at an unprecedented moment, unprecedented moment and Republicans can't gamble on another Donald Trump candidacy. Quote, we are living in unprecedented times, and this country is in trouble, Reynolds said, sitting next to DeSantis at her Terrace Hill home in Des Moines, ahead of an evening rally where she'll make the endorsement publicly. I cannot believe how it has declined over just this short time under President Biden. And we're resilient. We'll be able to come back f from this. But if we don't win this next election, we're done." End quote. Reynolds, who had been a Trump ally when he held the White House, said she appreciates the former president's accomplishments, but believes it's time to move on. I don't think he can win, she said simply. Instead, she's throwing her support behind DeSantis, a fellow governor who she said has an admirable track record of accomplishment in Florida that he would bring to the nation as president. I believe he's a candidate that can win, she said. And we also not only need somebody that can win, but we need somebody that has the skill and the resolve, which he clearly does, to reverse the madness that we see happening across this country. 
Currently, Trump leads the latest Des Moines Register NBC Mediacom Iowa poll with 43 percent among likely Republican caucus goers. DeSantis is tied for second place with former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley at 16 percent. Reynolds said she believes DeSantis can win the Iowa caucuses regardless of the current polling, and she hopes to tout his achievements around the state. Ron's moving the needle, she said. I'm just here to tell his story, to make sure people look at the record and know what he's done and why I believe that he's the right person for this job, the right person at the right time. And so I'm going to tell it over and over, and I'm not going to miss an opportunity to do that. When I'm in, I'm all in. DeSantis said that nearly every person who shows up to caucus on January 15th knows and respects Reynolds, which speaks to the value of her endorsement. In August, Des Moines Register NBC News Iowa poll found that 81% of likely Republican caucus goers viewed her favorably, including 50% who viewed her very favorably. Another 18% viewed her unfavorably, and 1% were not sure. That's better than any of the GOP presidential candidates fared. She told me she wants to be active, and so we obviously welcome that, DeSantis said. She's the best surrogate you can have in the state, of course. But also, you know, I told her, my wife and me, we're workhorses. So if there's something you recommend, go speak to this group, go speak to that one. You tell us, we want to be there. We want to earn the vote. DeSantis told the Register that Reynolds' endorsement is noteworthy, not only because of the star power she brings to the race, but because he believes Iowa and Florida represent the future of the party. It's meaningful to me because this is really the model I think that the Republican Party can use to succeed going forward, DeSantis said of Reynolds' endorsement. What Kim's done here, what we've done in Florida, Brian Kemp in Georgia, these are states that used to be viewed as very competitive, and we've been able to win really, really big victories. And I think it's because of leadership and then results. Trump has already lashed out at Reynolds in a string of social media posts, accusing her of being disloyal and arguing her endorsement of DeSantis is, quote, the end of her political career, end quote. Santa's defended Reynolds against Trump and his loyalists, some of whom have called her a rhino or a Republican in name only. I think what some of these influencers will say is, if you don't kiss the ring for Trump for 2024, then somehow you're a rhino, he said. You have some people that have horrendous records, but if they kiss the ring, somehow they're great. Like that is not good posture, because we're in this, not for personality, we're in it to deliver results for people. And so I think that when Trump is attacking really strong, accomplished Republicans for self-serving reasons, that's a dead end for the Republican Party. Reynolds agreed. That is destructive to the party, she said. It's rare, though not unprecedented, for Iowa's top elected officials to weigh in on behalf of candidates ahead of the caucuses. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley endorsed his good friend, U.S. Senator Bob Dole, in 1988 and 1996, and former Governor Terry Branstad encouraged Iowans to caucus for anyone but Senator, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz in 2016. But it's far more common for Iowa's high-profile figures to take a hands-off approach. Grassley and others have pledged to remain neutral this cycle. Reynolds, too, had initially ruled out endorsing anyone ahead of the Iowa caucuses, saying she preferred to welcome the full slate of candidates into the state. But more recently, she opened the door to the possibility. She said Monday that she believes she fulfilled her duty by welcoming all the candidates to the state and helping give them a platform to reach Iowans.
For seven months, I did that. Attended a lot of events, made a lot of phone calls, helped talk about events to go to and to be in front of, she said. Ultimately, though, she said she felt called to step in. As a mother and a grandmother and as an American, I just felt like I couldn't stand on the sidelines any longer, she said. We have too much at stake. Our country is in a world of hurt. The world is a powder keg. And I think it's just really important that we put the right person in office. Reynolds said she doesn't believe her endorsement will jeopardize the future of Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses. And she doesn't believe she will alienate Iowa Republicans who continue to support Trump. We had two other statewide elected officials that have also endorsed, Reynolds said. You've had a lot of legislators that have endorsed different candidates. In fact, Ron's done pretty well with our legislators here in Iowa. But so, you know, when we're done, when this is over, we're Republicans, and we get behind whoever our candidate is. I happen to think it's going to be Ron DeSantis. I believe that's who it's going to be. But we are Republicans, and when this is done, we get behind whoever our nominee is and move forward. Republican Party of Iowa Chair Jeff Kaufman said in a statement that the party itself remains committed to maintaining neutrality. The Republican Party of Iowa, from our staff to our Central Committee, remain committed to our neutrality pledge in the 2024 caucus and to maintaining our first-in-the-nation status. Iowa's elected officials are free, as they have always been, to chart their own course when it comes to endorsing the caucuses. Reynolds said the timing of her endorsement is less about strategy. She decided she wanted to endorse, and as soon as she did, she wanted to make it public. Once I was in, I was all in, she said. Reynolds and DeSantis have charted similar political paths, growing their national profiles amid the COVID-19 pandemic when they led the Republican states in pushing back against shutdowns and mask mandates while leaning into controversial culture war issues. Both governors have signed laws prohibiting school instruction in LGBTQ topics and offering state-funded private school scholarships to all families. Both governors have also banned abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Trump called the Florida version of that bill a terrible mistake. Reynolds said she remembers getting a phone call from DeSantis in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Both had made the decision to send kids back to classrooms and were facing a wave of backlash over a decision they still maintain was the right one. The pair talked about what we are going through and having the moral conviction to do the right thing when the right thing is not easy to do, Reynolds said. More recently, when Reynolds' husband, Kevin, was diagnosed with lung cancer, she got another phone call from DeSantis and his wife, Casey, who previously battled breast cancer. They were among the first to reach out, Reynolds said. DeSantis offered to connect Reynolds to doctors, and Casey came to visit to talk about her experience with Reynolds and her husband. Not only is he tough and disciplined, but he's compassionate and cares, Reynolds said. DeSantis has previously suggested that Reynolds could be a good running mate. He said Monday that he continues to believe she would be a good pick, but he perhaps underestimated the number of Iowans who want to keep her in the state. Bottom line is, she's qualified for the positions that have been mentioned, he said. But I also respect Iowans in terms of their views on some of this stuff, too. Reynolds said governors continue to be, play a big role in guiding the country forward, and DeSantis would need strong governors if he takes office. I'm focused on, really, on this next cycle, and I'm focused on serving Iowans and getting this guy elected, she said. That's what I'm focused on. 
Our second article from the front page of today's Des Moines Register, stalemate between USPS or the United States Postal Service and an apartment leaves Des Moines tenants without mail delivery. Tenants of a Des Moines apartment complex, many of whom are refugees who speak little or no English, are not getting their mail, stuck in a stalemate between the apartment management and the United States Postal Service. Neither the property management company nor the USPS agree on who owns the shared mailbox at Legacy Apartments in the Lower Beaver neighborhood, meaning some tenants have not been issued mailbox keys. The situation was brought into the attention of the Ethnic Minorities of Burma Advocacy and Resource Center, or EMBARC. One tenant has been without mail access since moving in on August 25th, according to volunteer Deborah Timmons. Several of our clients residing at a specific apartment complex have come to us recently stating that they have not received a mailbox key since moving in, Embark said in an email to the register. We have advocated on behalf of our clients to the apartment complex and the post office, but both have denied responsibility to resolve the issue. Around 20 tenants are having this issue, according to Embark, and the language barrier is making it difficult for them to resolve the issue. Many of the residents rely on the mail to pay bills and to maintain correspondence with the Department of Human Services for food assistance or Medicaid, Timmons said. Legacy Apartments is managed by Integrated Asset Management, IAMLLC, a property management company that provides multifamily management services. Tina Smothers, owners of Integrated Management, IAMLLC, said in a statement to the register, quote, Legacy Apartments is working with the USPS on clarification of recent policy changes. We have instructed residents to communicate with the post office on how to receive mail temporarily until we have a solution. We strive to support our residents, owners of the United States Postal Service team members during this time. She did not respond to follow-up questions to clarify policy changes. Meanwhile, Mark Inglet, Spokesperson for the United States Postal Service said last week he doesn't have information to share with the Des Moines Register because he can't get a hold of the apartment management. On Monday, he issued a statement that said the USPS has worked with the apartment management team to establish their process for installing and maintaining locks for tenants of their apartment complex located at 3610 Tuana Drive. They are currently in the process of identifying current tenants requiring a lock change, Inglet said. Going forward, we have established a schedule with the management company that will provide consistency for lock changes to ensure all tenants continue to receive mail delivery. There is only one way to receive mail at Legacy Apartments, and it requires a key to the centralized box units, which are located outside of the parking lot. The apartment manager says that the CBU is owned by the Beaverdale Post Office, and the tenant will need to get the key from them, Tim had said in an interview with the register. But the Beaverdale Post Office says that the apartment owner owns the box, and the tenant needs to get the key from the manager. The tenant Timmons is working with did not respond to inquiries from the register. Property manager Aubriana Sink told Timmons in an email shared with the register that apartment management does not have access to those mailboxes, nor have we since they were installed in 2017, and I have no keys or no way to access the mailboxes to change the locks. On October 19th, Sink said the apartment management is awaiting an answer from the postmaster for more information. 
When reached by the register, Sink said to contact the corporate office, and he declined to give further information. Meanwhile, the Beaverdale Post Office told Timmins, quote, the post office is not responsible for those locks until management is able to get those locks installed and changed, quote, and according to an email shared with the register. The property management company owner previously advocated for equal opportunity housing. In an interview on Facebook with the Polk County Housing Trust Fund in 2022 in support of Welcome Home Iowa, an organization with the Iowa Finance Authority that supports equal opportunity and affordable housing, Smothers said, I'm a firm believer that we have housing choices for everyone, no matter how much they make per year and what their circumstances are. Smothers has owned Integrated Asset Management, IAM LLC, since July, but has been in the property management field for 26 years, owning properties across the state, according to the video on Facebook. Previously, she was president of the Artisan Management Group. According to the Facebook post, Tina is one of the original forces behind PCHTF's Landlord Forum an annual event that brings together property management professionals and social service providers for training and for conversations to make sure every resident relationship is successful. And now in the Metro and Iowa section, Evangelical Leader hasn't endorsed yet. Trump pollster says it will have little impact on the race. In the wake of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement of Ron DeSantis, a pro-Trump pollster is minimizing the impact of another potential endorsement from one of the state's most prominent evangelical leaders. A Monday memo from Tony Fabrizio, a pollster for the Make America Great Again Incorporated, a super PAC backing Donald Trump, told donors and supporters of the former president that Bob Vanderplatz, president and CEO of the family leader, has no significant impact on the Iowa caucuses. Fabrizio wrote that polling he conducted in September indicated an endorsement from Vanderplatz, which has yet to materialize, would have negligible impact, and his image was mixed among caucus-goers who were aware of him. The memo was distributed the same day Reynolds appeared at a rally to endorse DeSantis, a major coup as his campaign seeks momentum against Trump in Iowa. While the DeSantis camp will try and spin that a Vanderplatz endorsement will revive their sputtering and shrinking campaign, cold, hard data tells a much different story, Fabrizio wrote. Vanderplatz has so far declined to endorse ahead of the January 15th caucuses, but has been publicly and frequently critical of Trump, arguing that conservatives in Iowa need to opt for new leadership and that evangelicals are exhausted by the former president. His organization hosted several candidates at his summit in Des Moines earlier this year, which Trump did not attend. He told the Des Moines Register Monday night that he took it as a compliment and a show of respect that the super PAC would poll about him and remain noncommittable about backing a candidate. Whether I endorse or not remains to be seen, Vanderplatt said. And what influence my endorsement has, I've been pretty consistent in saying that my endorsement usually means they can count on my vote. But outside of that, that's up to others. Vanderplatz supports Mike Huckabee, supported Mike Huckabee in the 2008 caucuses, Rick Santorum in 2012, and Ted Cruz in 2016, all three of whom won the Iowa caucuses but failed to win the party nomination. The big endorsement in Iowa, Vanderplatz said, was not him, but Reynolds, and said the memo pointed to the fragility of Trump's lead in Iowa. 
I think they know it's very fragile, and I think they see the same thing that I do, in the same thing that Kim Reynolds says, he said. Following Reynolds' endorsement of DeSantis, reported Sunday by the Des Moines Register, Vanderplatz wrote on social media that her backing would be a force for the Florida governor. Obviously, I think she sees that time is urgent, and the time is needed, and she wants to weigh in, he said. The Trump campaign, shortly after Reynolds' endorsement was reported, also turned to polling to minimize the potential impact she could have on DeSantis' chances in Iowa. Quote, Kim Reynolds apparently has begun her retirement too early, as she clearly does not have any ambition for higher office, a Sunday email from the campaign declared. Trump himself criticized both governors on social media Sunday, saying that MAGA would never support her again, just as MAGA will never support DeSantis again. The campaign and its allies' efforts to downplay the two prominent Iowa figures comes while Trump continues as a frontrunner ahead of the caucuses. The October Iowa poll found him leading the field by 27 percentage points, with DeSantis tied for second place with former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley. In more political news from the Metro and Iowa section, Haley Coalition backs Iowa farmers candidate has warned of Chinese takeovers. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley has launched a new coalition aimed at lifting Iowa's rural communities and focusing on issues facing farmers and families. The Farmers for Nikki Coalition is led by several Iowans who have all endorsed Haley. Ray Gazer, a longtime corning farmer who previously served as president of both the American Soybean Association and the Iowa Soybean Association. Kelly Newenhoos, Newenhoos, former president of the Siouxland Energy Cooperative, a Sioux Center-based ethanol plant. The Primgar corn and soybean farmer is also part owner of a hog finishing operation and was once president of the Iowa Corn Promotion Board. Mary Boot, a chief executive officer of the Global Farmer Network and a former agricultural advisor to former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad. State Representative Austin Harris, a Moulton native who works on his family's cattle farm. He was also Deputy Chief of Staff to U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks. Chris Weirman, former CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. Geyser, the coalition's chairman, said in a statement he believes the nation's next president must be strong, someone who can lead with balance and influence and guide with our American values, both domestically and abroad. And that's Haley, he said, touting her experience as a former governor of South, Ch of South Carolina and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. He and Haley's Iowa political director, Bill Mackey, also pointed to her personal life. Haley on the campaign trail has shared fond memories of growing up in rural South Carolina, a town that has around 2,500 people and two uh, stoplights. She has often joked, you couldn't think about doing something wrong without somebody telling your mom. Haley has publicly spoken about her support for Iowa farmers and renewable energy and warned against Chinese entities taking over U.S. farmland. She's told voters that the nation's largest pork producer, Smithfield Foods, has been owned by a Chinese firm for a decade. Headquartered in Virginia, Smithfield Foods has packing facilities around the country, including in Iowa. Like many Iowans, Nikki grew up in a small rural town where faith, family, and farming were always top of mind. Here in Iowa, we're seeing the communist China infiltrate our agriculture industries. 
And no one is better suited to combat that threat than Nikki Haley, Mackey said in a statement. She knows that Iowa farmers feed and fuel the world and will always have their backs. In September, Haley had held three events, including a town hall and roundtable event with local agricultural leaders in rural Grand Mound. During the town hall event, which drew in a 300-plus audience, she told hundreds of potential caucus national security. Haley's campaign continues to bolster support as her candidacy rises in the polls, emerging as one of two top alternatives to former President Donald Trump. Haley, in recent weeks, has been a target for both Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Haley, whose campaign also recently opened its first headquarters in Clive and beefed up staff, is also one of five candidates who qualified for Wednesday's third Republican presidential debate in Miami. An October Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll showed 16% of Iowa's Republican caucus scores named Haley as their first choice for president, tying DeSantis, who has long held second place behind Trump. Trump still remains the dominant challenger in the shrinking pool of GOP candidates, garnering the support of 43% of Iowa Republican caucus scores, according to the poll. I love the work. Monsoon marks 20 years of serving Asian victims of sexual assault. Mira Youssef sits cozily at her cluttered desk as a subtle scent of essential oils lingers in her dimly lit Des Moines office. Long, thin, leafy plants in mismatched jars line the shelves of a tall bookcase. Behind Yusef is a life-sized poster that contrasts with the quiet, calm space. The words that scroll across the wall are big and bold, embodying the weight of the work that Yusef and her staff do to help Asian and Pacific Islander communities in the heartland heal. They're advocates, serving their own communities and often confronting issues that are at times complicated, layered, or feel familiar and personal. This workspace has big thinkers, go-getters, late nights, and awesome ideas. Honest feedback, lots of coffee, challenges, the poster reads, and conquerors, dream chasers, mold breakers, and change makers. Twenty years leading monsoon Asians and Pacific Islanders in solidarity, Yusef laughs when asked how her work has changed her. Oh my God, I'm so tired, she jokes as she celebrates the organization's 20th anniversary. I have gray hair. I got fat because it's a lot of work. But I love the work, so I cannot complain. Once an arm of the Iowa Coalition Against Sexual Assault, Iowa CASA, Yusef launched Monsoon two decades ago with one goal in mind, to carve out a safe space for Asian and Pacific Islanders who have experienced sexual assault or domestic violence. She wanted to offer them a place to go where they could feel comfortable and work with people who looked like them, spoke their language, and understood how their cultural history and religious beliefs impacted them, their families, and even the generations to come. That's a tall order, Yusef said, especially in states like Iowa, where nearly 90% of the population is white, and many organizations are led by white people. Yusef, who immigrated to Iowa from the Philippines as a teen, said she spent time with family in the Hawkeye State and in California, but began her advocacy work in the San Francisco Bay Area, volunteering at a woman's shelter. The latter shaped her experience and fueled a mission since returning to Iowa, which today remains the foundation for Monsoon, located at 4944 Franklin Avenue. When I came to Iowa, there were no advocates that looked like me. There were no folks working in the victim services or programming that was specifically for the Asian community, said Yusef, who has led Monsoon as the executive director for more than a decade. 
But I know for sure that Asian women or individuals are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. A 2020 report by the Asian Pacific Institute of Gender-Based Violence revealed that up to 55% of Asian women in the U.S. have experienced some form of physical or sexual violence during their lifetime. The report, which compiled several data sets and statistics across the last two decades, cited a study from 2010 by the National Intimate Partisan Sexual Violence Survey that found that at least 20% of Asian American and Pacific Islander women have experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. In the National Latino and Asian American study, found in 2009, that roughly 10% of Asian women reported experiencing minor violence at the hands of their partners, and at least 2% of Asian women reported experiencing severe violence by their partners. Stop AAPI Hate, a national coalition that seeks to fight against racism and racial injustice toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, recognizes the violence that women and girls in their communities face, violence later compounded by discrimination, harassment, and hate crimes during the COVID-19 pandemic. In Iowa, Yusuf said she and her staff built Monsoon to establish a support system for survivors of color. While other communities experience trauma and violence, Yusef said survivors' access to services and programs can vary. Yusef explained further that mainstream services push for therapy and counseling as a solution, but that doesn't always work for the clients they serve. There are some who turn away from therapy or are quick to ask, why would I talk to you about my stuff? The Asian Pacific Institute said Asians and Pacific Islanders often do not report incidents of sexual or domestic violence because they feel ashamed or embarrassed, were unsure of who to turn to, or did not want their partner to be arrested. They reserve the right to question, Yusef said, but it's her and her staff's job to build trust with their clients and figure out how to connect with them. Ayoko Mon, a multilingual advocate and community outreach worker at Monsoon, works out of the nonprofit's Dubuque office and with the city's Marshallese and Puapanya communities. Dubuque has the largest population of Marshallese residents in Iowa, somewhere between 600 to 800, according to the National Civic League. Mon, who is Marshallese, said she'd had to get creative and use arts and crafts as tools to help participants reflect on their feelings or experiences. In her culture, Mon said topics such as mental health, sexual or domestic violence, or menstrual cycles are considered taboo and left unspoken. We don't talk about it, she said. Of mental health, Mon said it is common in her community to offer faith as a solution to just pray these things away. But people's changing attitudes, she added, require time, patience, and education. It again also requires trust. Moen told the Des Moines Register that the first time she learned about gender-based violence was in 2020, when she first began working for Monsoon. She knew incidents of sexual assault and domestic violence happened in her community, but did not hear them named. At Monsoon, Moen said it took a while for her to get comfortable with hearing the phrase over and over. It also took time for her to say it out loud, or as part of a guided conversation with people from her community. I had to come out of my comfort zone in order for me to learn about these things, she said. Elizabeth Barnhill, the former executive director of Iowa Casa, said she has watched Yusef over the years grow her organization and boost its services. Apart from Des Moines and Dubuque, Monsoon has offices in Iowa City and more recently in Atlantic, 
its expansion colliding with the rise of Aurasian and Pacific Islander populations. Monsoon also launched a program called the National Organization of Asians and Pacific Islanders Ending Sexual Violence to provide support for services in the U.S. and in the Pacific and Asia aimed at helping victims of sexual violence. The nonprofit was recently named a recipient of a yield-giving grant, an initiative established by billionaire philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, whose goal is to give aid and boost organizations. Monsoon plans to use the money in various ways, including to strengthen its services and retain staff, according to a news release. This year, the state debtor Data Center of Iowa reported that 88,093 Iowans identified as Asian, while 6,324 identified as Hawaiians or Pacific Islander. Asians make up nearly 3% of the state's population, while Pacific Islanders account for 0.2%, the agency said. The data center said it expects the Asian and Pacific Islander population to double to 196,000 by 2060. Barneal told the Register that she has been impressed by Yousef's ability to meet the needs of the communities Monsoon serves. She doesn't come in with an idea like, I'm a leader and I'm going to explain to you what needs to happen in this community, Barneal said of Yousef. She goes in and talks to people. Barneal explained further that Yousef isn't afraid to ask, what does your community need? What's going on? What's happening? That methodology, that mindset, is crucial to Monsoon and it pays off. Leaning on Monsoon's mission, Moan and Youssef reiterated the importance of creating space for their participants. There are times, Moan said, when she has allowed participants to lead the discussions and talk about what they want. Barnhill recalled an event Monsoon held years ago. It was play, a play focused on Southeast Asians in their journey leaving their home countries and living in refugee camps. Barnhill remembered that play was put together because Monsoon's teen participants at the time were becoming more curious about their family's histories, stories left untold because they were too painful, too emotional to share, or too difficult to remember. It was very moving, Barnhill said, about the play. It also broke down barriers and created some openings for families to be able to talk about their experiences, Barnhill said. Many of Monsoon's participants, some of whom are refugees and immigrants, want to feel like they are not alone. They don't want to be isolated, Yosef said. They want to be part of a community. A quick walkthrough of the Monsoon office in Des Moines reveals a sense of warmth like in Yosef's room. It feels homey. Bright patches of color stain the walls. Streaks of sunlight peer through the windows, reaching the plant's leaves. Prints and posters liven the space with encouragement and enthusiasm to balance the work that can feel heavy and hard. When asked what drives Yousef, she said simply, I'm a feminist. That is a so-called core value of how I live. This is my practice, she said, and I love, love this work. I don't think I could do anything else. Also from the Metro and Iowa section, after bankruptcy court approval, University of Iowa has officially purchased Mercy, Iowa City. A bankruptcy court approved the University of Iowa's purchase of Mercy Hospital in Iowa City on Monday. The bankruptcy court for the Northern District of Iowa has officially handed over ownership of the 234-bed hospital and its assets to the university, who had submitted a winning bid of $28 million in an auction late last month. In a statement Monday, university officials and Mercy executives say they are heartened to begin the planning to bring Mercy, Iowa City into the UI healthcare system. 
From the beginning, both our institutions have focused on bringing accessible health care to Iowans, regardless of their ability to pay, according to a joint statement from UI and Mercy Iowa City Leadership Monday. It is that same spirit of steadfast commitment to the service that will be vital as we join our two organizations. The anticipated merger is expected to take place in early 2024, officials said. There are no immediate changes for patients, employees, or physicians as hospital executives begin planning next steps. Patients at Mercy Iowa City are encouraged to schedule and go to appointments as usual. Community providers not employed by UI Healthcare can continue to practice at Mercy's facility under an open medical staff model, officials said Monday. Those employees in good standing will be offered jobs at UI Healthcare. Together, we will preserve and enhance access to quality health care and jobs for those throughout our region, according to the official statement. The UI won the auction for the 150-year-old community hospital in Iowa City in an unusual turn of events last month, after a previous $29 million winning bid by Mercy's top creditor was reversed. The Texas-based investment firm Preston Hollow Community Capital was set to take over operations of Mercy after successfully beating out other contenders in an auction in early October, but that effort halted after Mercy reopened the auction process. Preston Hollow, which had invested $42 million into the hospital in 2018, had initially won the bid using a combination of cash and some of the credit it had in Mercy. However, the hospital and private equity firm disagreed over who would be responsible for covering Mercy's operating costs, leading to concerns over whether Preston Holly would be adequately invested in helping the hospital maintain its operations. Needless to say, this disagreement necessarily meant that the value of the final bid from Preston Hollow was materially different than what the debtors and the committee determined at the auction. Daniel M. Simmon, one of the attorneys for Mercy, said in court last month, Once the deal is closed, the university plans to retain all medical staff in good standing with the hospital. Faculty appointments do not have to stay at the hospital will not be required to remain at Mercy. The university has also agreed to establish an advisory board comprised largely of community members, independent from the hospital. Additionally, the UI will invest heavily in hospital improvements, including improving infrastructure and IT services, a key point of emphasis in winning the bid. Preston Hollow's bid did not originally include money earmarked for future developments. The university has committed to provide at least $25 million for medical equipment, roofing, and general technology as Mercy integrates with the university's health care system. And returning to national and world news, <clears throat> pardon me, as Congress stalls, the states take action. If federal leaders are asleep at the wheel this fall, state governments look like they're in the driver's seat hitting the accelerator. After ousting former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, last month, U.S. House Republicans took weeks and rounds of voting to find their replacement in new Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana. Amid the infighting, lawmakers have made little progress on funding the government ahead of a November 17th deadline to avoid a potential shutdown. Meanwhile, local and state officials have taken the lead on issues voters are paying attention to, including gun violence, abortion, and education debates. Quote, most of the legislation that you see in, is at the state and local level, said Abi Rahman, communications director for the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. 
If you want to really affect policy change, you have to be able to win elections where the most policy gets done. Here are some of the issues where voters are looking to their state and local governments instead of the national officials to make change. Protecting abortion rights. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 ruling that made abortion legal nationwide, President Joe Biden has called on congressional lawmakers to protect abortion rights. But he has also acknowledged there isn't enough support in Congress to make the move. That's why activists are pushing for abortion rights to be enshrined on the state level, particularly in states where strict bans now exist. National polls show that support for abortion rights has increased since the Supreme Court blocked Roe v. Wade. So far, voters in six states, California, Michigan, Vermont, Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana, have either passed measures to protect abortion access or rejected efforts to restrict it. This week, the eyes of the nation turned to Ohio, where voters considered a ballot measure known as Issue 1 to enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution through viability, typically around 24 weeks gestation. Next year, voters in Maryland and New York will vote on amendments to their state constitutions that could strengthen access to abortion. And advocates from, from Arizona to Florida are pushing to put similar measures on their ballots, eyeing Ohio as a blueprint. The issue has also been key in state campaigns. In Virginia, Republican officials support Governor Glenn Youngkin's proposal for a 15-week abortion ban, with exceptions for rape, incest, and severe medical emergencies, while Democrats have rallied against it. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear and his Republican opponent Donald Cameron have clashed over exceptions to abortion bans against the backdrop of the state's current law, which completely bans the procedure except when a person's health is at risk. A slew of education bills. Education became a high-profile campaign issue after COVID-19 pandemic-related school closures and curriculum culture wars. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is also running for the Republican presidential nomination, signed his state's Parental Rights and Education Act into law last year. Florida officials later expanded the act, dubbed the Don't Say Gay by critics, to bar instruction of gender identity or sexual orientation in grades K-12. through A handful of copycats have since passed elsewhere, including in Ohio and Alabama. Nearly half of all states introduced some version of the so-called parents' rights legislation this year alone, according to the Georgetown University think tank Future Ed. Virginia has been a hotbed for the issue since Youngkin capitalized on parents' frustration during his successful 2021 gubernatorial campaign. At the federal level, the Republican-led House tried to pass their own parental rights and education law earlier this year. As at the local level, critics accused the bill of being a guise for racist or homophobic beliefs designed to limit which perspectives or versions of history are taught in classrooms. The legislation is now stuck on the Senate side, where it faces an uphill battle against a Democratic majority. And COVID, marijuana, and other issues. Other issues driving voters to the polls include COVID-19, the legalization of marijuana, voting procedures, and slavery. Two ballot measures in Arizona and California centered on COVID-19-related re regulations. An Arizona amendment seeks to limit emergency powers for the state's governor, while the California amendment seeks to create a state pandemic early detection and prevention institute. 
measures about the use and sale of marijuana, an issue that has long appeared on ballots, are making another round in this year's and next year's elections. This week, voters in Ohio weighed in on whether to legalize the recreation, recreational or personal use of marijuana. Several states, including Nebraska, South Dakota, and Florida, expect similar measures on next year's ballot. Since the 2022 pardon me, that's 2020 presidential election, voting policies have also spurred nationwide interest. Ranked choice voting will be up for debate in 2024 in Oregon and Nevada. Anti-slavery measures will also play a role in future elections. Though the 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolished slavery in 1865, a loophole clause makes it still legal in some states to work without pay as a, quote, punishment for a crime, end quote. Last year, measures to eliminate the exception appeared in five states, four approved. Next year, Nevada voters will decide. From Washington, stakes are high in third GOP debate, likely to determine who will challenge Trump. Five Republicans hoping to be the GOP's nominee for president will make their case on the debate stage Wednesday in Miami, sparring with each other over who has the chance of returning a Republican to the White House while shadowboxing its last occupant, former President Donald Trump. Trump was once again, or has once again, snubbed debate organizers and will be absent from Wednesday's event, denying his competitors, all of them well behind the billionaire real estate mogul in the polls, the chance to go head-to-head with the race's bombastic front-runner. One analyst likened the Trump-free debate stage to the children's table at Thanksgiving dinner. But there's still plenty for the candidates to prove. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will duke it out over who is the best Trump alternative, as Haley has drawn even with the Sunshine State Governor in recent polls. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy have also qualified, winnowing the debaters down from seven in the second debate to eight in the first. There are just over two months to go until the Iowa caucuses on January 15th, the first real test of voter attitudes. So what must the candidates prove? As that test approaches, the Republican primary field is entering what GOP strategist Rob Stutzman calls the consolidation phase. There's two primaries. This is the first primary to see who can go ahead, go head-to-head with Trump by the South Carolina primary in late February, he said. Haley has surged in popularity in recent weeks, buoyed by her last two debate performances. DeSantis, once considered the likely alternative to Trump, has begun falling. A Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll released in late October showed the two tied for second place at 16% support each from likely Iowa Republican caucus goers. As they enter the third debate, DeSantis will be pedaling as fast as he can to regain momentum, while Haley will be seeking to pull out another command performance that can help her finally overtake him. Each will have their own obstacles to becoming Trump's main opponent. DeSantis has positioned himself as a younger, more energetic version of Trump, targeting the party's right-wing base. Without moderate GOP support, he'll have to convince Trump's fans to choose him instead. Haley enjoys that moderate GOP support, but would have to attract a sizable chunk of the base to wrest control from the former president. 
For Scott, Christy, and Ramaswamy, Wednesday may be a last chance to garner the attention and funding necessary to continue their campaigns. Scott's only qualified for the debate last week. Requirements for the fourth debate on December 6 will be even more stringent. Around 40% of Republican voters don't want Trump to be the party's nominee, Stutzman said. So it's an important night for those voters, particularly in those early states who get to have some say in it. Even as the candidates on stage Wednesday night seek to set themselves apart from one another, they'll still have to grapple with the former president's long shadow. Trump dominates the field with nearly 60% of the GOP electorate preferring him over his rivals as of Monday. The yawning gap in popularity has left him without much need to tussle with his struggling challengers. Trump has not appeared in any of the GOP debates to date, instead staging his own audience-rich counter-programming, including a rally in Detroit and an interview with former Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson. He will repeat that pattern Wednesday night, hosting a rally in nearby Hialeah, Florida, that aims to suck the oxygen from the debate stage at the Adriani Arsht Center for the Performing Arts in Miami. That's the right strategic move, said Larry Sabato, director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. What has he missed out on? It's like the kids' table at Thanksgiving, Sabato said. There's nobody eating at the regular table except Trump, and he's not letting anybody else sit with him. Joining the debates would only give Trump's opponents more of a platform, he added, by bringing additional viewers to the event and opening himself to direct attacks. At this point in the race, Trump would have to collapse in popularity in order for Haley, DeSantis, or any other candidate to catch up, Sabato said. That would come from a potential conviction in one of the four criminal cases Trump faces, though the trials will begin too late in the election cycle to make that likely. As the primaries draw closer, the remaining candidates will have a harder time keeping voters' attention if they can't make a big impact. If Trump continues hovering thousands of feet above the field, Sabato said, this is going to become such a sideshow that almost everybody is going to have a Netflix series they prefer to watch. GOP Senator's offer is border reform for Ukraine support. A group of Senate Republicans issued a warning on Monday threatening to withhold their support for aid to Ukraine if Democrats don't accept sweeping changes to border policies. Senators Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, and James Langford, Republican of Oklahoma, released a proposal Monday that would make it harder for migrants to enter the country by seeking humanitarian asylum. Asylum is a protection given to people who can show that they can't return to their home country because of persecution. Under the Republican plan, people arriving at the U.S. border would only be allowed asylum if they could show they were denied entry to at least one other country between the U.S. and their home country. The proposal would also require migrants to prove that it's more likely than not they would face persecution in their home, rather than the significant possibility currently mandated. Migrants would also be ineligible for asylum if they have been convicted of felonies or other serious crimes, including DUI or certain drug offenses. The Republican lawmakers also called for codifying the so-called Remain in Mexico policy, first enacted under former President Donald Trump, which requires migrants to stay in a neighboring country while they await decisions from U.S. officials.
A group of Senate Republicans plans to demand these changes in exchange for their support for President Joe Biden's funding requests for aid to Ukraine, as the war-torn nation continues to fight Russian invasion. Biden has asked Congress to pass $106 billion in supplemental funding for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. That proposal included uh, $61.4 billion in support for Ukraine. House Republicans, who remain divided over providing additional support to Ukraine, last week advanced standalone funding for Israel that is dead on arrival in the Democratic-controlled Senate. A record number of people are coming to the U.S. southern border seeking refuge as they flee dangerous conditions and authoritarian governments in their home countries. More refugees came to the U.S. in the first eight months of fiscal year 2023 than any year since 2017, according to the Migration Policy Institute. Something got to give, Graham said Monday. The White House panned the Monday proposal, but indicated it would be open to negotiation. The White House has been privately preparing Democratic lawmakers for changes to asylum law in exchange for passage of Biden's proposed funding for Ukraine, Politico reported last week. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, denied the report on Friday. She did urge Republicans to fully fund the Department of Homeland Security's operation on the southwest border and the agency's capacity to process asylum requests. Leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, Asian Pacific American Caucus, and Black Caucus released a joint statement Friday raising strong opposition to the international aid that also establishes new immigration or border policies. Other Democrats pushed back on the Monday proposal, but they remained open to some potential policy changes. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, said the Republican proposal will make getting much-needed Ukraine funding approval more difficult. But, quote, there are pieces of their proposal that we could probably have a discussion about, as long as there are Democratic priorities on the table, too, he said, (coughs) such as a pathway to citizenship for people who were brought to the U.S. illegally as children. Senator Joe Manchin, a centrist Democrat from West Virginia, went so far as to openly support the proposal, saying people should not be incentivized to come to the U.S., I don't think we're looking at anything that people would think would be unreasonable, he said. I think it will be even moderate compared to what a lot of Americans want right now. But we've got to do something. Turning now to some additional Iowa news. Suspect charged with murder in 2022 hit-and-run crash. Des Moines police have filed charges in a 2022 hit-and-run crash that killed 32-year-old William Klein. Devosi Aaron Wisdom. 24 has been charged with first-degree murder and second-degree theft, according to news release. Wisdom also has been charged with leaving the scene of an accident in regard to a hit-and-run at another intersection that night. At around 2.30 a.m. on January 12th of 2022, Klein was hit by a 2004 Chevrolet Cavalier in the 700 block of East Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway. Klein was transported to a local hospital where he died, according to previous reporting. From the investigation, officials believe Wisdom stole the car near 8th Street and Douglas Avenue at around 2.15 a.m. About 15 minutes later, he was at the intersection and allegedly ran over Klein before circling back and running him over multiple times. Wisdom is currently incarcerated on four felonies he also committed between January 12th and January 13th of 2022, including burglary and robbery charges. Detectives continue to investigate the case.
Also, a bill would expand access to opioid overdose reversal drugs. U.S. Representative Zach Nunn is introducing legislation to expand the availability of opioid overdose reversal medication. Nunn, a Republican who represents Iowa's 3rd Congressional District, unveiled the legislation at a news conference Monday at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines. Any death from an overdose is one death too many, Nunn said, citing state data that reported 398 overdose deaths in Iowa in 2021. The bill, known as the Overdose Reversal Medication Act, would expand a federal grant program to make businesses, individuals, and community organizations eligible to receive grant money for overdose reversal medications such as naloxone. The bill would also direct the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to create a standard for training employees on how to use the overdose reversal medicine and for storing the medicine. Dr. Clint Howard, or Hawthorne, excuse me, Medical Director of Unity Point Des Moines Emergency Department, said the idea is to get the medicine out in the community so it can be immediately available to someone who overdoses, even before first responders arrive. Seconds matter in those scenarios where patients have accidentally overdosed, Hawthorne said. Sometimes those seconds between when a professional medical provider can arrive on the scene and when the administration of this medication can be given is too late. The bill is co-sponsored by Democratic U.S. Representative Ruben Galigo of Arizona. Iowa and the federal government have taken steps this year to combat opioid overdoses. At the state level, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a law in May making opioid overdose a reversal drugs uh, making opioid overdose reversal drugs more easily available to law enforcement agencies, to school districts, local health departments, and fire departments. The law also imposes stronger sentences for those convicted of manufacturing and delivering or possessing fentanyl. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced on March 29th that it was making Narcan, uh, naloxone nasal spray, available over-the-counter without a prescription. And in a little bit of uh, state news from North Carolina, wildfire prompts state of emergency. Firefighters' efforts to contain a 431-acre wildfire in North Carolina were successful overnight, according to the North Carolina Forest Service, as no further structures were damaged by the blaze. It is 5% as of now, but that may change a little bit this afternoon as we continue to see better conditions. Edneyville Fire and Rescue Chief Robert Griffin said at a news conference Monday, It is confined. We have a line around it, almost a 10%. Containment is how confident we feel that if we walk away, that the fire will not get out and get any larger. So we're saying 5%. That may go up a little bit. I can't see us going up past 20% containment at this point and time today. As for the cause of the blaze, Griffin said when crews initially responded on November 3rd, they were told by homeowners that they had been doing a controlled burn a week prior. It's dry. The embers likely popped back up and started the fire from that. That's what we're going off of as an assumption. We've taken time to do the investigation and won't be able to do it until the incident is over, he said. Griffith said the cause remains under investigation. Henderson County declared a state of emergency on Sunday and the Forest Service also issued a burning ban, which is now expanded to 14 counties in western North Carolina.